Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another installment of the Innovation Crush. Uh, by the way, I never say the the title like that. I'm just I'm trying to iterate. I'm trying to do a little bit of uh, improvisation on my own brand here. Um, if you guys are tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things ideas, creativity, innovation, smart people doing smart things, and. Uh, I'd like to introduce Kelly Leonard, because the book does not stop with those other guests. It starts here with Kelly Leonard. Say hello, Kelly. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you doing today? Everything good? Everything's good. I'm sitting here in Chicago, right on the river. Beautiful day. Ah, so, so, such lovely surroundings. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess for starters, if you don't mind, um, I would love for you to give a little bit of one, uh, 101 on yourself and um, obviously your long-standing relationship with uh, Second City. Yeah, so um, I have worked, I, I've literally worked at Second City my entire adult life. I started as a dishwasher in 1988, and this is when the cast included Mike Myers, Bonnie Hunt, Jane Lynch, Chris Farley was in the touring company and constantly getting in trouble for breaking stuff. Um <laughs> <laughs> and Tim Meadows and a bunch of cool people and, and immediately sort of got the bug. Um, really worked my way up. Uh, and in 1992, I became the producer, associate producer of The Second City. Um, and I hired people like Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, um, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, Keegan-Michael Key. Worked with, uh, uh, created shows with Seth Meyers and Jordan Peele. So, it, and, I, and I've done it, so I'll be 30 years in, in October. Um, and I also wrote a book called Yes And, which is about how Second, T Second City takes its improv-based uh, uh, pedagogy and learning into companies. Uh, we also create a lot of content for these companies. Um, and, and in 2015, after I wrote the book and was on book tour, I ended up stepping down from my producing role, and I kind of invented a new gig at Second City. So I am the executive director of Insights and Applied Improvisation. I gave myself the longest possible title uh, just to <laughs> annoy people. Uh, but essentially what I do is I, I, I do a lot of writing, um, and I do, do a lot of keynotes and lead workshops, uh, but I also um, oversee uh, inventive collaborations. Uh, so we have one with the Center for Deci Decision Research at Chicago Booth that looks at behavioral science and improv. We have a partnership with a group called Caring Across Generations, where we're teaching improv improvisation to the caregiving community. Uh, we're working with Kim Scott, who's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who wrote the book Radical Candor, and we're using our improv and comedy uh, work to bring her work to life. Uh, so it's it's like been an amazing place to work. Uh, uh, Second City is legendary, and the thing I most love about it is that we're even though we're an old comedy theater, we're always doing new stuff. We're always continuing to improvise. Well, that's uh, it's not bad for a, a guy who washes dishes. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, you got to start so, somewhere. Right. Well, it, it, well, here's what's interesting to me about that. Right. I think we live in a time where people change jobs, you know, every right. one to three years is, you know, sort of the statistical average. <laughs> um, but you found a way over a long period of time to continue to evolve. I'm curious, A, just what was that first step that were like, obviously you didn't go there to wash dishes. I saw that you have a college degree. Yes. Um, but, you know, did you have a game plan then? And then what was your first sort of inkling of like, 
ah, I can do something here. So, yeah. Uh, so we're taping the, we're taping my end of this at WGN Radio in Chicago, uh, which is where I host my podcast. And um, I bring that up because my dad uh, was a TV uh, and uh, radio guy at WGN for 33 years. So he pretty much like uh, so that was the model I had in front of me. And another reason I bring him up is because part of my dad's job was he reviewed theater. And when I was in college, I got you know, bitten by the theater bug and I wanted to be a playwright. And so he, my dad got me a couple informational interviews uh, with Rock Schulfer, who runs the Goodman Theater here in town, and then Bernie Solins, who was the co-founder of Second City. He had sold Second City, but he was starting a new theater. And then Bernie hired me. Bernie was like, hey, uh, uh, yeah, you can come be a PA on my new theater. It doesn't start yet, but guess what? I'll get you a job at Second City. I'll call someone over there. So I went in, of course, you know, I'm, I'm a kid who grew up in an affluent North Shore suburb and I assumed I'd be, you know, marketing director and no, I walk up and I get stuck in the back bar and I have to wash dishes. And this was like a terrible job. I mean, it was like, you could smoke in the theater in those days. Uh, our, <laughs> our weekday shows started at 9 PM. I mean, it's like, like, you know, and then there was no, I mean, the dishwasher was me and some brushes. It wasn't like I put stuff in a machine. There was no machine. Um, and so I sort of toughed it out uh, while I was doing my my writing, my playwriting. Uh, but then, as I started to sort of get moved up, um, and I went away and worked for that other theater, that 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 theater folded very quickly. Came back to Second City, worked in the box office, and I just had. I guess I was someone who who wasn't afraid to sort of look at something and go, "Wow, I wonder. I think we could do this better." Or have we ever thought about doing it this way? And I did that enough and had enough success uh, that you know, in '92, they they took a chance on a 26 year old, and, and it was completely ridiculous to hire me. I was in no way um, uh, had the <laughs> Uh, skill set to land in the job I did. Uh, thank God they didn't think about it too much because uh, I was really able to sort of fail on the job without anyone getting too weird uh, and until, until I kind of figured out how, how to do it well consistently. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. And that is the sort of the asking the right questions and having the right solutions or even those solutions that people didn't necessarily, you know, know a problem existed for. Right. Um, which also kind of leads me to sort of the next evolution of what Second City has become and where I kind of became fascinated with it. You know, you, you know my background in, yeah. in comedy and was very aware. But then it was like, we do corporate training. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? Second City does corporate. So uh, tell us a little bit about how that works. But also, like, when did you find that you could connect those two worlds. Yeah. So when I started at Second City, so this is 1988, they, we would do some work for companies, mostly as like the accountant was retiring and wanted a customized show. So you'd write a song about the accountant or something like that. And then occasionally would do a workshop. Some people were interested, but it was all incoming. It was all like, you know, you pick up the phone, someone asks if you do this, you'd be like, we, I guess we can. Uh, and then we do it. And then we formalized, uh, it was called Second City Communications for a long while. Uh, and that started to kind of grow as a business. And we were doing slightly more organized selling. And we created a brochure. But it wasn't until 9-11 happened. Uh, and, when, and, and this is an interesting thing because there, there's, I, I've talked to a lot of people lately about this idea of it's like, you often have to, 
if not hit rock bottom, have something somewhat traumatic happen so that you can grow. Uh, the term I've heard is post-traumatic growth. Um, and this is what happened here. So 9-11 happens. Our corporate business tanks. There's no one who's going to hire a comedy troupe to come into a business. I mean, the theater itself was, you know, struggling to get, get audience for the first, you know, few weeks after that. Um, but it also allowed for us uh, to bring in a new guy uh, who'd been a client of ours. His name was Tom Yorton. I, and I co-wrote my book, Yes And, with him. And, and Tom really looked at our corporate business. He's like, you know what? You need to be doing more of the innovative work you do in the theater space for the corporate space. Don't try to homogenize Second City for the corporate market. You know, so wear, wear the clothes you wear. Bring in the ideas that you, you bring in because that's what companies need. And lo and behold, the business just skyrockets. So we're innovating in that space. We're deciding, like, one of the things I love that we do is um, someone approached us uh, for, like, doing a live show around ethics and compliance because it's so dry. And we're like, oh, man. And we're researching it. We're like, oh, wait, this is dry. This is a perfect white space for us. And so one of our biggest successes we have is a thing called Real Biz Shorts. You can license all these really short, funny videos that accompany ethics and compliance training. Because this stuff is mandatory. People have to take it. They have to check the box. And they're not paying attention. And the way you get them to pay attention is when you see a bunch of our brilliant idiots uh, having a scene where someone is completely doing it wrong. And they're laughing. And they're they're getting the point. And so this is this becomes a multi-million dollar business line for the for the corporate group. And really, ever since uh, 2002, that's the kind of ad adventurous spirit that this group has where we're like, okay, what else can we do? Who else can we be partnering with? How else can we uh, access the power of the, the, here's one, the creative process at Second City. So we have this iterative, iterative creative process over like a 10 to 12 week period when we create a Second City show where we're mining the audience for insights uh, about what they care about and then create comedy uh, based on that and, and test out so that they, you know, uh, the, so that they respond. And when we know that they're responding, that scene is locked and it's in the show. Well, guess what? How many businesses need to do that with product launches, with product ideation? They use focus groups. It's like, no, no, no. Come here, use an audience. And so we got this thing called Brand Stage, which is our partnership with WPP, where we basically replace the focus group with an audience. We use comedy because we often, you know, with focus groups, you're asking all these people questions about what they believe. They're not telling you the truth, but you cannot hide a laugh. A laugh is true or a laugh is not. And so that moment when we know we've got everyone, we're like, okay, that's the point that we mine. So I love this because it's so non-corporate-y. It's, 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 you know, expensive kind of product, but what it is is taking and embracing the full theatricality of uh, the process of creating a comedy show. Yeah, and, and, and so uh, you, you had me at ethics and compliance. <laughs> <laughs> that is what, the, that's um, the only time that has ever been said, <laughs> ever. See, I, I like to do first ever. Yeah. Um, no, but I, like, so you're giving those three words and you go, oh, no. Um, <laughs> what happens in the room when you brainstorm, right? Because you, you could right. very well say like, no, we're not going to do that. But the, there had to be somebody who's like, uh, let's give it a shot and see what we could do. So what is that 
process like because i love yeah. like the, this idea of unlikely pairings yes and the fact that you have the, you know this world and your world combined yeah. so what walk us through a little bit of that design thinking in, in the process sure well this is this is this this is the heart of yes and so when you work at second city uh and you're you're trained um we we are taught to not say no at the start that you are sort of forced to say yes and so that you can be in any business context at second city and if you come back with a no it is and I don't care if it's me talking to the owner. It is perfectly acceptable for me to be like, really? We're not going to yes and for a moment here? And then it's like you're shamed and be like, you're right. Okay. So so what yes and does, it allows for like a, a seemingly bad idea to live for a moment. Uh, we have a client, and this is in our book, where, where we says what I love about that process is you don't have to love every idea, but you do have to love every idea for a little bit. And often what then you discover is like, oh, this thing's kind of hanging around. And if we combine it with this other thing, uh, you have a phrase in your work where you say, put garbage on the whiteboard. And that's what this is. Yes, and allows for a lot of garbage to go on the whiteboard. And then what, what we've discovered, here's an interesting thing. So I mentioned before that we have this uh, partnership with the Center for Deci Decision Research at Chicago Booth, the business school at the University of Chicago. So we're working with a bunch of behavioral scientists uh, to co-develop ex executive education programs and do research. Yes, and was one of the first things we took into the lab. So we we sat with us, uh, we 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 led them through the yes and exercise. And so, real briefly, what that exercise is like when we go out and do a corporate workshop is we have people pair up, we have them pitch a reunion, and person A has to pitch to person B. Person B in the first round has to say no in as many ways as possible to every idea. And we sort of unpack how that feels. Then they switch uh, uh, pairs, and person B is pitching, and person A has to say yes. Yes, but. And we often say that yes, but is no with a bow tie. And then the last uh, thing we do is where they yes and. And that always, you know, people come up with like crazy ideas. They're having sushi on the moon. It's great. It feels good. And when we gave this to the scholars, they're like, that's great. But what do you do when you truly have a disagreement? How do you manage through that moment when you really you really can't yes and, or you don't want to yes and. And so we looked at the evidence, and we looked at the research, and then we discovered what it is, is this, this fourth module, which is thank you because. So the idea is if we have a disagreement, or I really don't believe the thing you believe in, and you're telling this to me, and I want to stay in the conversation and work with you, or I need to, I first have to thank you for that idea, so that sets off the gratitude part of our brain. And then the because is really important, because then what I got to do is find, find any kind of point of agreement inside the thing you just said. I need, I need to restate what you said in your words so you understand that I'm seeing and hearing you, and then I have to find a point of agreement. Then when I share my truth to you, you have to do that as well. And we've led this particular workshop with a number of corporate clients. We also did with a bunch of caregivers and doctors and nurses, and it was very emotional in the room because people were able to kind of finally talk about something, but also... They feel seen and heard, and the behavioral science that we've got says that is the most important thing. If you, I have a friend who always says, uh, if it can't be used for evil, it's not a superpower. So everything I'm saying to you, you can use for evil. Um, politicians do it, marketers do it, all that stuff. But in used for good, you are really hearing the other person, you're seeing the other person, and you're fighting for a place of agreement, and that will at least let you stay inside the conversation. And I think that that stuff's really provocative. That's that's. Beautifully stated. Um, you know, the one thing I love about your work is that it's it just in general the evolution overall. 
But, you know, even going from that and looking at how this neuroscience or this behavioral science in the, um, within the second science project, yeah. these are life principles. Yeah. Right? So it goes from comedy to business to just plain old life. Human um, being stuff. I, exactly. And I was watching one of your TED, your, well, your TED Talk, um, and I, I love this quote, which was, 99% of us think we're frauds, <laughs> and the 1% who doesn't are dangerous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kind of just walk us because like, sure. I'm a huge sufferer of imposter syndrome, but yep. I, I'd like to hear you know how you approach it or how you think about it. All right. So first, I've got to say, after I delivered that TED talk, um, I was because uh, it was in Minnesota, it was in Rochester, Minnesota, and uh, someone had seen it on the street. Was like, hey, we could, can you have a drink with us? And then uh, she's like, I love that thing where you said 99 percent of us think are frauds. And the husband's like, yeah, what's the science on that? And I'm like, there is no science on it. So just know. Uh, uh, that is just my opinion. My <laughs> University of Chicago friends would be aghast that I would use that percentage, although I think it's true. Uh, and and the idea there is, um, it has been my experience, and there is science to back this up, um, that we wildly misperceive things all the time, um, and we all, we we have envy and we have bias and we have all this noise that that lives among among us, and a lot of that makes us fearful. Uh, a lot of that makes us uh, live with shame. Um, and what we do know from the neuroscience is the one thing you can't have uh, if you want to successfully improvise is fear and shame. And so part of what I try to do with people is let them know, like, if you Google me, I look pretty cool. I know that. I have a cool job. Um, my dad was in a cool industry. Um, uh, but what you don't know is that, like, I... I <laughs> I think I'm an idiot. And and I have coworkers who make fun of me all the time because that is how I put myself out into the universe. And hey, guess what? Lo and behold, that's been really successful for me. The idea of being like, oh my, I, I make so many mistakes. Here's a mistake I made and like acknowledging it and owning it. And that level of sort of authenticity and vulnerability. And Brene Brown talks about this a lot in her work, which is where I really connect to that, which is that's where the good stuff is. That's where you actually build real relationships with people. And so if you can just allow yourself to be vulnerable uh, in the moment, and this is especially powerful in a business sense, because people don't do it in business. The ones who do over time have longer success. Adam Grant's work at Wharton speaks to this. Uh, uh, Dr. Keltner at Berkeley, his work speaks to this. It's, it, it, is, it is that the, you know, the givers win. And the takers will win in the short term, but usually not in the long term. Um, so I, I wrote down something, uh, which is ROI. Have you heard of it? I have. Yeah, <laughs> but I this time, <laughs> but no, you won't hate it this time because the way I thought of it was return on improvisation. Oh, that like um, that. And see, I thought, there you go. So that's my free gift uh, for you being on the show today. But um, I'm curious as to what results have you seen from doing these with corporations? Like what happens with teams? What happens with the business overall? Um, what are those letters that you get back in the mail? Like, thank you for making me do that. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, we get a lot of this. Uh, Here's the first thing. They hire us back. So, you know, we are are sort of like we don't do a lot of one off gigs. We we build relationships with 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 customers. Um, What has been incredibly gratifying uh, is how many clients have woken up the fact that they just can't do one improv workshop uh, a year and it's done because that is akin to me going to the gym once and going, I'm good. Um, th- these muscles now are, are, are great. Uh, so what a lot of uh, organizations, we, we do a lot of work with Johns Hopkins, and we're working with like engineers and rocket, literally we're working with rocket scientists. Uh, and, and they, more than anyone, uh, often need to practice their human being skills, uh, practice their ability to communicate in ways that they can fully be understood. Uh, They need to listen uh, uh, to understand rather than listen to respond. Um, And so we've got programs where we're back on campus, you know, uh, eight, nine, ten times a year. Uh, And then when when companies also figure out that we don't just do training in the room, that we're also really funny and we've got a lot of content ideas, we have a client that we've created a 24-hour podcast with. Uh, and it was everything from comedy sketches uh, to interviews uh, to you know live talk shows. Um, and so we're able to put our theatrical uh, uh, hats on and be like, oh, we can we can make a show for you. And as you know, you know, storytelling is so crucial uh, in in marketing and in communicating. And we're natural storytellers. We we do it with a comic voice, which frankly is pretty sticky. That's a good that's a good storytelling voice. Uh, it's and, and we're also good with short form content. So this is also funny, right? So I, the, our company started in 1959, and it was experts in co created content, uh, co created short form content. Well, what? Where do we live in today? I mean, this is in the world of crowdsourcing and YouTube videos. You know, I mean, it's like, oh my God, like the expertise finally caught up to the technology. It's wild. That, yeah, that's and that's absolutely just being able to connect all those dots, right? And, yeah. and um, really get that sort of return, the time spent. It's, it's, it's amazing. I'm like, totally nerding out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, as I was also thinking, just uh, you mentioned that the, the Second City has been around for 50 plus years. Yep. Uh, so a couple things are in there to, to unpack. A, you kind of over time have inherited the brand, the name Second City. Um, and it's such an iconic staple in comedy and now in business. It's, you know, slowly but surely becoming one. Yeah. Um, how do you go about managing that brand? Like, what's is there something that's next? What do you think about as you are developing things? What does Second City stand for? Yeah, um, I just asked you like eight questions all in one. But all right, I got I, it. I think you, I think you get what I'm getting. So, first of all, the name derives from. Um, the writer A.J. Liebling, uh, who I think it was in the 30s, was uh, wrote a series of articles about sh- the city of Chicago, and he hated it. Uh, so he said it's not a first city, it's a second city. So when the founders of Second City decided to use an insult, uh, adopt an insult to be our brand and our name, that says it all. Um, this is one of the reasons that we frame our hate mail and put it up in the lobby, because uh, we want the context <laughs> of people to understand what they're dealing with. Um, we, we own who we are, uh, blemishes and all. So, so there are so many incredible sort of traditions and adages, and, and um, uh, we have such a tremendous culture uh, that it becomes really, 
it rot when when we discuss should we do this or should we not do this should we put the brand on this because first of all we've never had corporate sponsorship at the theater there's always been a, a feeling that that's just going to be going down a road that we can't go down so even if we have a million dollar uh, deal with Allstate uh, we don't um, and we did a scene on Allstate that they got upset at we would walk away from the million dollars that at least the ownership that exists now would walk away from those million dollars. And I have I've been in that situation. We we had a show going up in Denver. I think I can tell this now. It was a while ago. Uh, and we had a scene that was all about the sort of um, not so great uh, um, sensitive past of cores. Um, there was some Nazism. <laughs> there was some homophobia. <laughs> uh, and turns out cores was a sponsor of the theater that we were in. And they were like, oh, wow. and this was like a, a contract, you know, this is half million dollar contract. And they're like, I think we're going to need you to take it out. And I went to our owner, Andrew Alexander. I'm like, what do we do? And he's like, we can't take it out. That's just, that's not who we are. So I went back to my buddy and I'm like, I'm sorry, man. You know, if we have to walk away and tear up the contract, we will walk away. And um, they ended up being cool with it. They're like, no, no, we talked to them. They're, they're cool. <laughs> they, they know their past. So it, it worked out. But what a proud moment that I had where I could actually say to the cast, guess what we did? Um, and this is the kind of ethic that exists at this company. Um, and, and so, you know, what, we had a TV show called SCTV, um, and that was very on-brand. We've developed other television shows, some that have done okay, some that haven't. Uh, we get approached all the time. We, we turn down way more than we accept uh, with regard to projects, um, whether it's a TV thing or a digital thing or uh, putting a theater in a, in a shopping mall or whatever. Um, you know, so over time, we've had to make a lot of difficult decisions. And, and it's becoming, I think right now, kind of fascinating because because the sort of baby boomer aesthetic, uh, the, you know, don't want to appear to be a corporate sellout, that's kind of gone away. Uh, right. in, in culture now, if you, I mean, what's Beyonce? What's Jay-Z? I mean, you know, the our artists, our best artists are brands and companies. And so... I think we're now just starting to figure out how we can embrace uh, the part of us that also does make money uh, and that does not always cutting edge comedy, but learning programs and, and, and adjacent expertise. But it's it's we ain't there yet. I'll say that there's still a lot of uh, fighting in the boardroom on this stuff. Well, there, yeah, there you go. Jay-Z also said, I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. <laughs> um, I like that. So. But yeah, you can write that one down. Well, no, that that's his. That's his. I so, can't <laughs> uh, so as we wind down, uh, a couple more questions here. Um, I guess first, it sounds like you. And by, by the way, have you guys taken this globally? Like, um, as, as, or is this funny? Much funny, you should. Funny, you should say that. I just spent the day with uh, a group that from China that we've been working with. So for the last year and a half, we have been training uh, a group of young, uh, both uh, Chinese entrepreneurs and uh, future Chinese comic performers. And we've done uh, sketch and improv. We've done some stand-up training. Um, and we just today sort of met and talked about uh, how we might be able to build this this partnership out more. Part of the way the reason this happened is because we do have a partnership in Japan uh, with a group called Yoshimoto, who is one of the biggest entertainment companies uh, in Japan. And we are integrated into their training programs in their comedy school. So now there is Second City branded uh, improv training. We, we train their trainers. Uh, and 
they've developed um, uh, Second City. It's called the Empty Stage, and the Second City brands in there as well. Uh, and these are improv groups that are performing all over Japan. They've done some cruise ships. We've started to do some corporate work, and over the years we've done we we do a lot of international work, a lot of training and 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 content, and we've performed a lot in the UK. But it's interesting. These Asian markets are the ones that have been most active for us in the sort of modern era. Wow, and all from washing dishes. Oh, so, well, I ain't doing it alone. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, so, last but not least, uh, you know, uh, the show is called Innovation Crush, uh, and that's what got me to the global question because I was like, oh, you've probably seen a lot of stuff around the world. Um, what uh, What have you seen out there that you personally have a crush on? Like, what's your current innovation crush? Oh wow! All right, it's not going to be in the comedy field. Is that okay? Yeah, no, I, I, I welcome things that are not in your domain. Okay, uh, so. I have a number of them, and they're literally all behavioral scientists, um, uh, which I know is nerdy as hell. Uh, but the school of, of behavioral science that is my biggest crush, it's Danny Kahneman. So Danny Kahneman wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, I highly recommend you read it, but I will also tell you it is a very hard read. It is very technical. It's an academic text. But... Kahneman, the, the principle that lays at the, lays at the heart of thinking fast and slow is that uh, this idea of right brain, left brain has already been disproven. It doesn't exist. It's not how we our brains work. He identifies basically system one, system two brain, that we have a fast brain and a slow brain. And the fast brain is the one that's processing like, oh, I see that. That appears to be a guy. That appears to be someone who's middle-aged. They, they don't appear to be a threat. And then you've got your slow brain, which is the one that is ideating around, huh, maybe I'm I'm not seeing everything here. What's what's sort of deeper? And and we're using both at the same time. That's improvisation. So when my wife Anne, who's a, um, a longtime Second City uh, teacher and director, and she's a comedy academic, she runs the first ever uh, BA in comedy writing performance at Columbia College here in Chicago. She read this and was like, "Oh my God, this is our work and the, and the science of our work." Um, and so. Uh, that's what attracted us to the behavioral science community. And I was in one of the early meetings at the University of Chicago when we were talking about collaborating. And Heather Caruso, who I co-lead the initiative with, brought in one of her former students, who is now a professor there, named Linnea Gandhi. And Anne brings up Thinking Fast and Slow, and Linnea's like, oh, I worked on that. And it turns out that she's Danny Kahneman's research assistant. Um, and <laughs> so like, it was meeting three, and she's like, I've got something for you. And it's a signed copy of his book. And Anne and I were like, it, like we're such nerds you know it was like the Beatles had come you know to us or like Richard Pryor or something you know comedy god no it's this you know Israeli born very difficult human being who happens to be maybe the smartest human being in the world uh, and, and actually he's also the subject matter for Michael Lewis's latest book which is called The Undoing Project so that's my crush yeah fabulous alright and the very last thing this is the most difficult uh, which probably will be easy for you just knowing having spent this uh, this last bit of time with you. Yep. Um, com complete this phrase. Innovation to me is... Well, it's, is it cheating to say innovation is improvisation? I mean, I do believe that. Uh, if I want to spin off of that, um, I would say... Um, you know what I would say? Innovation is inclusion. And I think that... We are we live in a time uh, where we're so scared of this idea around diversity and inclusion. And I say this as a 52 year old straight white man. Um, and 
it is effing us up uh, because all the great art uh, in the world, great scientific discoveries, great business is when we basically decided to include the outlier, uh, whether that was an outlier idea an outlier person. Think of the inventors, right? Uh, uh, from from Tesla uh, to Edison, the, these uh, to uh, Freud uh, to uh, you know uh, uh, all of them. They were all complete outsiders. They were all, maybe on the spectrum. They were you know and and when and they were rejected most most of them. Steve Jobs, the the, the iPod was rejected so many times before Jobs got his hands on it, and Jobs had so many successes and failures and guy himself but that that point of inclusion when we decide to like basically say all right i guess it doesn't have to look like this other thing that's where true innovation comes from well stated uh, way, to, way to dig deep that was <laughs> that was really well done um well where else can people find more of your work your yeah. services you where do you, where do you want people to go? couple places uh our website secondcityworks.com uh we host uh the podcast there we have a lot of uh, all the links to kind of different the research that we're doing as well as the services we offer i'm on twitter at kl second city i'm on linkedin i i post a lot i try to get I, that's part of my job is to push out our stuff uh but yeah uh come check us out we always got a lot of fun stuff going on all right. Well, thank you so much, Kelly Leonard, for joining us. Thank you for having um, me. Yeah, no, no worries. And everyone, this has been another amazing installment of Innovation Crush. We'll talk to you next time.